parenting, obviously, as we think about it this morning, is what, what our topic will be. Is certainly on my mind as we are now uh, parents of four, which is different than three, and we we've not had a baby in our home for a while, and so it is very different. But uh, we we are doing well, as I mentioned. Our son Duke was born on Monday, uh, right after noon. It was twelve o two. Nancy went into labor on Sunday evening and woke me up about two o'clock in the morning, and so we we were up pretty well all night, and uh, then. She delivered just afternoon, as I said, and and uh, so I, I do have, I've got a couple of pictures I did want to show you guys. They should be there. Uh, you can pull those up. There's, turn the lights down just a, just a little bit. Um, he, he's already, he's already uh, on the right track, as you can tell, toward the bottom of the picture. I showed someone a picture earlier, so he's got blue, blue pants on, looking good, and they look down. I said, yeah, he looks good. So anyway, and then there's, there, I think there's one more. That's a close-up. He, he actually he looks just like his brother. Uh, he looks just like Hank. And so, uh, sorry, you can, you can turn the lights back up there. Um, you know, it, it, as parenting obviously is on my mind, you know, it, I have lots of desires, as I'm sure you have or have had uh, for your own children, if God has blessed you with the privilege of, of being a parent. Duke's name has has a lot of meaning, um, and and I will start with this. It has nothing to do, though, contrary to some folks' opinion, who I accused of trying to get me fired. Uh, it has nothing to do with uh, with Duke University, which uh, uh, you know I'm sure we all have a, a, a Kentucky fans more so than Louisville fans, but I'll have a general disdain for for Duke University. If you're a Duke fan, we love you, just not Duke, and so. Um, so anyway, and I, I mentioned in an email, if you got that, that you can't spell Duke without UK. So just just be aware of that if you're a Kentucky fan, all right? But, but, but you know, Duke's name has, has something to do with my desire for him. It really does. It, it has some, some nuances to it. It's, uh, all of our children have four-letter names. Um, uh, the girls have two syllables. The boys both have one. And, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a reference to baseball. There's a Hall of Famer named Duke Snyder. Uh, and um, it, it, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, who's now passed away, looked a lot like John Wayne, the Duke. And so we kind of tipped our hat toward him a little bit. Um, it, it really what sold me and ultimately sold Nancy, I had to do some convincing on the name. Uh, what saw was from day one, that's what I said. Um, but what sold Nancy on the name was the meaning of his name. Uh, both of our girls' names, uh, Lucy and Nora, both mean light. And in my prayer for them is that that's what they would be. As women of God, they would be a light in a very, very, very dark and darkening world. That's my prayer for them. And their names reflect that, no pun intended. And so uh, Hank's name uh, means leader or ruler of the household. Duke also means leader. I'm praying for my sons that they will become godly leaders both in their home and their churches, their communities. And that's really the, the, the impetus behind why would we name a kid Duke of all things? That's a nickname. That's a dog's name. Why would you do that? And so that's the reason right there. And so, uh, yeah, I have desires for my children. I really do. I want things for them. Uh, you know, I, 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 I'm sure you're just the same way. If God has blessed you the opportunity of being a parent, you have certain desires. But I realize this, that, that if my desires do not come down to and center on one point, and that is to see my children become devoted, lifelong, sold-out followers of Jesus Christ, then my desires for my kids don't matter. They really don't. I have lots of extra desires. I want my boys to play baseball. I played baseball. It's the only thing I know to talk to them about. I, I got nothing else. 
They want to work on cars. I'm going to call some of you all to help them. I don't have any clue. They want to play basketball. Obviously, I'm vertically challenged. Basketball was not going to be my thing. Uh, you know, I have certain desires, but I tell you what, all those other things really don't matter if I miss the point of being a parent. And I don't speak today on any particular point of expertise. I am a work in progress as a parent. And some of you just say, you just wait, and we'll see in a few years. Listen, I, I, I'm with you in saying, you know, I don't have any clue what I'm getting myself into. Now, four times over, I, I want you to know that I don't speak today from a point of, of standing above anyone else and trying to tell folks what you should do and how you should do it. What I stand on today is I hope what we find common ground on, and that is one thing that we all must center ourselves on, and that is the Word of God and what God Himself has to say about the way that we as parents should approach our children. Now, some of you, as I've mentioned during this series, are not in the stage of raising children anymore. Your children may be grown. You may not have any children. Uh, you, you may have lost a child tragically to death. I know that that has happened for many of you. And, and so this may be a difficult message to understand, well, how does this apply to me? What, what truth should I take? Even if you are not a parent, even if you are not in a parenting sort of stage of raising young children, you are around parents. We are a church full of parents. You saw the kids come down earlier. We must be, uh, both as individuals and as a community of believers known as Elm Grove Baptist Church, we must be about the principles that we'll look at today. So I hope and pray that you won't tune out simply because your parenting days may be over, you think, or, well, that doesn't really affect me. I don't have children, or, or I don't, I, I, I'm not in that stage, whatever, whatever it may be. I really hope that we'll focus in today and that the desires that God has will become the desires that we have for all of our children. Our focus scripture this morning, if you'll turn with me, is in Ephesians chapter 6. Some of you may already be there. Ephesians over in the New Testament. This is a letter that Paul wrote. Ephesians chapter 6. And we are in this series that we are completing, actually we'll complete next week, uh, called The Making of a Christian Family. So we've been highlighting and looking at what the scripture has to say about about the shape of our families, uh, the, the roles that each of us play in the family. This week we'll finish up our two-part message on parenting. Next week we'll actually talk about uh, children. What does it mean to be a godly child? And so uh, maybe if your children have not come to church in a while, you've got a week to drag them here and get them here. Listen to this guy, what he's going to tell you is what I've been telling you for 30 years. So anyway, I'll reinforce you next week. How about that? Uh, but let's look together in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. And here's our focus verse for today. And fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, the last time I was with you was a couple of weeks ago, and we looked at this particular verse, and we sort of approached it from general terms, uh, that, that, that parenting comes with authority, parenting comes with responsibility, parenting comes with accountability, but we really left it in some general terms. This morning, what I hope to do is, is to draw out some of the implications for what Paul is writing here. When he says, don't stir up anger in your children, other versions may say, don't provoke your children to anger. But bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. What really can we take from that? What does that mean, first of all? And then how then do we apply that? Now, Paul is telling his readers here something that was very different than what was typically taught during the time period in which he wrote. He wrote in first century Palestine during the time of the Roman Empire. And fathers during that particular time had absolute control over their homes. 
And I don't mean just that they were revered and looked at as some patriarch figure that everyone sort of looked to and, and went to for advice. They literally had absolute control. Their wives were very much second-class citizens, very much pieces of property in that worldview of the day. Their children were even worse off. In fact, when a child was born, it was brought to the father, set at his feet, and depending upon whether or not he picked it up, determined whether the child lived or died. If the father did not want the child, maybe it was the wrong sex, maybe it was a girl and he wanted a boy, and he would just leave it. And it was discarded in one of a variety of ways. It was either left just to die on its own, or maybe it was sent somewhere. Oftentimes the girls were sent to be raised into prostitution and so on. So the father had absolute control from birth over the life of his child. He determined whether his child lived or died, and, and also determined the severity of punishment that was doled out. And there was no punishment that was too severe. Any form of punishment was allowed, obviously including of abuse that we consider today to be repulsive and illegal. It was allowed. It was understood. It was just part of the culture. And so when Paul writes these words, fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This is news to them. This is different to them. This was a, a, a bright light in their eyes that stopped them in their tracks. You can imagine when he speaks these words into a community where fathers could do whatever they wanted, and he tells them, hold on just a second. There's a different way that Jesus wants you to go because you're a Christian. There's a different way. Obviously, it flies in the face of their society. Because a father's guide in, in this society was anything but love. They treated their children as property. But Paul obviously changes the game, and he calls fathers to a different kind of relationship with their children, one that would be based on love and spiritual guidance. So there's no more provoking. There's no more just doing what you want as a father. He says, now it's about nurturing, and now it's about love. And so that's the way that these original readers would have taken this. Now, last time that we were together, we looked at the principle that sort of is overarching in this particular passage of Scripture, and it's this, and it's the guiding principle that we saw then that we'll reinforce today, and it's very simply put, it is this, that parents are God's agents for the training and instruction of children. Parents are God's agents. That's what Paul is, is hitting at here. He's telling them, look, the way that it has been is not the way that it should be. It's no longer the way that it is under life with Jesus. And let me tell you, here's your new responsibility. Parents, you are on God's behalf, His agent for training, for instructing your children. That's the principle that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, and from that took the fact that parents, obviously, as a result of that, have authority to be just that, that sort of agent for their children. Parents have responsibility to do that, and they are accountable to God to make sure that that happens. Now, Paul highlights here that there are several different ways, actually just two, I guess, that you can go. Uh, you can raise your children up to be children of anger, stirring up anger in them, or you can bring them up, he says, in the training and instruction of the Lord. So you can either, as a parent, succeed or fail with your responsibility. Now, the good news is there's only those two options. So you're either going to succeed or you're going to fail. You're going to pretty well know it. Uh, not necessarily, though, I'll say, by how your kids turn out. I think it's a misnomer that we look at parents and their grown children and say, well, I can tell you exactly what kind of parenting they had by the way they act right now. Sometimes, many times, maybe even most times, that's true. But it's not always the case. Our responsibility as parents is simply to operate 
in full obedience as God's agent for instruction and training. Children, unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, have a mind of their own. And we laugh because we know that's true. I have four now. Each of them is very different. We'll learn soon how different Duke is to the other three. They each, though, Lucy, Hank, and Nora, all have a mind of their own. I try, let me tell you, I work hard to make them do things. And Lucy is now seven, going on 17. I, I can't make her do anything. Boy, it frustrates me. My goodness, it makes me so angry. But you know what my responsibility is? Is not to make her do something but to fulfill my role as God's agent of instruction and training and to do it to the very best of my ability under the power of the Holy Spirit. And so if you're a parent today and you say, you know what, I look back, my kids are grown, and I just think, I feel like I did everything that I should have done. I want you to be able to stand this morning on the truth of Scripture that that's maybe the case. Maybe you did. And your children still may not do what they are supposed to do simply because they have their own soul. They have their own spirit. They have their own mind. And so if you're a parent who's in the process of raising children, there are no guarantees. Proverbs 22.6 is the verse that's often pulled out of context. And we we say, if you'll train up a child in the way he should go, when he's old, he won't depart from it. And we hang on to that, thinking that there's a guarantee that 2 plus 2 equals 4 in parenting. It doesn't take long as a parent to realize that 2 plus 2 equals something, but we really don't know what it is. And it's probably not 4 any time. There is no guarantee from Scripture that if you do these things for your children, they will automatically love Jesus and follow Him. But there is a really good likelihood that they will. And I'll guarantee you this, you'll have very little opportunity for them to do that if you don't apply the principles from God's Word. So, let's look first. This will be a little bit of a reversal today. I want to look at how to fail so that inversely we can learn how to succeed as parents. Let me give you this morning seven ways to mess up your kids. How about that? You ready for that? You want to mess them up? You want to really ruin their lives? You want them to not love God and to run away from church? Here you go. I'm going to teach you how to do that this morning. All right? You came to church this morning and learned all the wrong things. Number one, how to mess up your kids. Focus only on behavior modification and by implication, ignore the real issues. Focus only on behavior modification And by implication, then, ignore the real issues. Now, this is the parent who provokes his child to anger. Because this parent is consumed with external conformity. You do what's right. You do what I tell you to do, and you don't ask any questions about it. And if you don't, let me tell you what's going to happen. You ever use those lines? Let me tell you. Listen, I used it yesterday. And so... We focus on external conformity. We want our kids to do the right thing and to be obedient and get in line and don't do anything else or you know what's going to happen. If you don't obey, guess what? This is the parent, unfortunately, with that approach that provokes, it says in the Scripture, or stirs up anger in his or her children because this parent is typically overbearing, very impatient, Expects immediate results. It's all about just the rules. You fall in line. Maybe you had a parent like that. And you look back on your childhood and you you say, you know what? I tell you what, I think back to my dad or my mom or someone who was influential in raising me and they were that kind of person. They only cared if I just did what was right. It didn't matter if I, if I wanted to do what was right. They didn't care about what was going on the inside of me. They just wanted me to conform. 
oftentimes parents with this mentality will set some unreasonable expectations and goals for their children. The bar is so high on external performance and making things look good and keeping up the image of the family that children often get frustrated because they can't live up to that. This is the parent who loses his or her temper quite often, forgets the power of his words, and may get the child to obey, but loses the child's heart in the process. When Paul says, don't stir up anger in your children, I really believe he's got in mind someone who's only focused on the externals. Someone who's overbearing, who's impatient with their children, who forgets the power of words and may influence the child to obey, but loses the child's heart. This parent is not nurturing. This parent is not a discipler. This parent is not an instructor. This parent is, in fact, very unwise. But the real problem is that they are ignoring the real issues. The real issue for my newborn son is not one day that he will disobey or obey me. The real issue is that he desperately needs, because he is a born sinner, needs the salvation of Jesus Christ. That alone is the real issue. He can be a good kid and miss the point of life, which is life devoted to Jesus Christ. That's his real issue. So if as a parent, I focus only on externals, only on modifying their behavior, changing what they do, I miss the real issue of their desperate need for Jesus Christ. I have missed the point as a parent. And you and I will mess up our kids if we focus only on behavior modification. So there you go. You want to mess up your kids? Focus only on behavior modification and ignore the real issues. Number two, try to give them something you don't have. Second way to really mess up your kids, try to give them something you don't have. Look at the Scripture again. And don't stir up anger in your children, but what? Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 6, write down the reference, and we, we, we looked at it a couple of weeks ago. It, it, it's a, a command to parents that Moses gives in Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning about verse 4, where Moses tells his, his, his uh, uh, Jewish uh, brethren there, he tells them, you are, the respond, you are the responsible party to impart the truth of Scripture, to, to pass on the commands of God to your children. They are to hear it from you. Now, all of this, by implication, means that parents are to have that inside of them in order to be able to give it away. The, the parent who tries to give children something they don't have, this is a parent who is often hypocritical, typically insecure, frustrated, confused, and probably inconsistent. This is a parent that says one thing, but lives another way, does something else. And it's foolish. And hear me on this. It's foolish if you're a parent. It is foolish to believe that we can be casual Christians, Sunday morning Christians, and then expect anything more from our kids. It's foolish to believe that. I'm not here to beat you up this morning. I just simply want to tell you the truth. If we are to raise up our children in the training and instruction of the Lord, what must first be present in our own lives? The training and instruction of the Lord. We cannot give away something we do not have. The truth is, you and I, as parents, as church members who are influential over children, we are replicating ourselves in our kids for better or for worse. My children will likely become a lot of who I am. They will have the same habits, the same tendencies. They'll fly off the handle at the same issues. They'll love God often to the same degree that I will. And that is a scary and very, very difficult thought. How do you fix that? How do you... How do you give them something that you have instead of something you don't have? Write down this reference, Luke chapter 9, 
verse 23 and following, Jesus is telling His disciples, here's what life with me is all about. Life with me is not all about just being a good person and being nice to people. He says these words, If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. He says whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever wants to to lose his life, whoever loses his life will, will save it. And he says, what good does it benefit you? What benefit is it if you gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit your very soul? Jesus says, it's all out all the time. Does that mean sinless perfection? Not in any way. But does it mean total commitment? Absolutely. That's what the life of a Christian is to be about. So how can you fix this issue? If you look at your own life and you say, you know what? I really want to give my kids a spiritual direction, but I look in my own life and I don't have that. You go back to Luke chapter 9 and you say, Jesus, today, I deny myself. And I'm going to identify with you. I'm going to put that cross on and I'm going to carry it today. And I'm going to follow you with all I've got. And you'll begin to replicate that, Lord willing, in your children. The truth is you'll mess up your kids if you try to give them what you don't have. And so we must devote ourselves to lives marked by the understanding and application of Scripture. The third way you can really mess up your kids is to abdicate your role as influencer. Abdicate your role as influencer. Now, if we go back to what we looked at last time, we looked at the fact that parents alone are responsible for this type of influence on their children. The main principle today we see parents are God's agents for the instruction and training of children. It is the parent's responsibility. No one else is called to influence your children like you are. No one. And this, unfortunately, the parent who abdicates his or her role is the parent who leans on the church or the school or the government or the television or the friends or grandparents or somebody else to fix or nurture or train or instruct or raise their children. And unfortunately, I really believe this is epidemic in our world. I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago how I used to work in a daycare. And then later on, which, yes, you can laugh. Twelve three-year-olds and me. And I was 19. I had a clue what I was doing. I still don't. And then I went to be a high school teacher. And then I went to be a youth pastor. And now I'm a pastor. And I can speak, unfortunately, from several different angles of experience. And if you've ever been in those types of roles, you know what I'm talking about. That it is epidemic in our world. And in our country. And believe it or not, in every county in Kentucky, that parents, to a large degree, abdicate their role. They give it to someone else. They take a hands-off approach. They, they, they figure the kids will turn out just fine. And unfortunately, they fail to realize that God's Word says that parents, parents alone, are to play the lead role as influencers. How do you fix this then? If you look at your own life and you say, you know what, if I'm honest, I know that's true of me. I have relied on the school. I've relied on the church. I've done everything else but putting myself where I need to be in the influencing role of my children. Are all those other things evil? No. Is the church supposed to help? Absolutely. We're going to do the best we can. And if we're not, then, then, then we, we need to get our act together. Let's be honest. But we're not the primary influencer. So if you look at your life and say those things, you know what, if I'm honest, I know that's true. How do you fix it? I think you, you, you begin with the principle of assuming that you are always 
the only godly influence your kids will ever have. In every conversation I ever had with a teenager, I used that. That was my guiding principle. Always assume you're the only godly influence this kid will ever have. I didn't know what their parents were like half the time. I didn't know what their home life was about. I took the approach, you know what, no matter what, I will always assume I'm the only, the only godly influence this kid will ever have. If you took that approach as a parent, as a church member, I wonder how it would change the outlook that you have toward those kids of yours, toward the kids that come here, toward the students and, and college-age folks that are here. I, I would encourage you to fix this. Instead of abdicating your role, stay one step ahead of your children. Be knowledgeable about what they're seeing, what they're listening to. Be knowledgeable about what they're, they're watching and so on. Be wise. Be prophetic, even. Be involved. Unfortunately, if you abdicate your role as a parent, someone or something else will take your place. And you probably won't like the results. You'll have a hard time regaining the God-ordained role of influencer in the life of your kids. So you'll mess up your kids if you abdicate your role as influencer. So we're almost halfway there. Here's how you really mess them up. Focus only on behavior modification. Try to give them something you don't have and abdicate your role as influencer. Now, here's the fourth one. And this sounds really fancy. Look at it on the bulletin. Doesn't it make me look really smart when I put this on there? Raise them to be moralistic, therapeutic, deists. Boy, that sounds really smart. I read a book about this and loved the terminology so much that I put it on your bulletin today. Without joking, though, I really believe this is the target for most parents. This is what most parents are aiming toward. But the command is to raise them in the training and instruction of the Lord, which is a life based on Scripture, which teaches of a Savior who came and died and rose again, and a Savior who calls us to die to ourselves and to follow Him. And if you don't do that, if you don't raise them in that kind of training and instruction, then you're probably not choosing to raise your kids as atheists or Satanists or evil people. That's not what you're choosing. You're probably, though, choosing to raise them as moralistic, therapeutic deists. What on earth does that mean? There was a study that was done not long ago on the spiritual lives of American teenagers. And the person who wrote the book coined this particular phrase, therapeutic moralistic deism, or moralistic therapeutic deism. It's moralistic. They try to do what's right. They don't really know why, but they're trying to be good. They figure that being good is really the end of their spiritual life. That, that's sort of the end of their Christian commitment, is just to kind of be good and do good things. And then it's therapeutic. That means that, that God is sort of that that grandfather figure who just makes sure that you got a few sweets and he know and you know that somebody loves you. You know that that's what God is there for. It's kind of therapeutic. Christianity is really just make me feel better about myself. They really try to uplift my spirits. And you know, I go to church just kind of be encouraged, a little pick me up for the week. He isn't. God is there, but he's not really involved in the details of my life, nor really should he be. That describes the spiritual existence of the overwhelming majority of American teenagers. We consider ourselves to be at, at least a religious nation. Some folks would still consider us to be a Christian nation. Most would say we are a post-Christian nation. But the spiritual lives of teenagers in America can be described as moralistic, therapeutic deism. They try to be good. They feel like spirituality is to make them feel better about themselves and life. 
and they figure God is out there somewhere, but He really shouldn't be involved in the details of life. Unfortunately, that describes the spiritual lives of most American teenagers, which, unfortunately as well, points directly, in most cases, straight back to their parents. Because the parents are either this way, the same way, just sort of do-gooders, be-gooders. Yeah, God's out there, but, you know, I'll check in with Him on Sunday, and we'll, you know, we'll take care of business, I'll clear my heart, and He's good for the week. They're either that way or, or likely they've abdicated their roles we just talked about. This is the parent who just wants their kids to be good people, to stay out of trouble, to make good grades, get a good job, just kind of have a good life. You notice the one consistent word in there is good. <laughs> Jesus never called us to simply be good. He called us to absolute and total commitments. The truth is, if we parent this way, if this is our goal for our kids, just to kind of make it through those years, those crazy teenage years, just make it through just kind of come out good on the other side and, and be a good contributing citizen and have a good life, if that's our goal, if that's where it ends, then we are setting our children up to believe a lie. Because Jesus calls them to total commitment, a life of sacrifice, a life of devotion to Him. So you'll mess up your kids if you raise them to be moralistic, therapeutic deists. Now let's turn the corner to 5, 6, and 7. Number 5 is this. Assume that you have an unlimited amount of time. Assume that you have an unlimited amount of time. <clears throat> Don't stir up anger in your children, it says, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. You know when that happens? Most likely it happens when they're young. A George Barna study, George Barna is a, a Christian researcher. He studied and showed that by the age of 13, most kids have everything that they'll believe already set in their mind. Their belief system, their worldview, their filter through which they'll make decisions and operate is pretty well set by the age of 13. And if it's not set by then, it's definitely set by the time they leave high school, for the most part. And so the truth is that we don't have an unlimited amount of time. And this is particularly important for parents of young children. If that's you, then I, I hope you understand that you do not have an unlimited amount of time. Those of you that have raised children, you say, hey man, listen, it went quick. My goodness, how quick did it go? I've already got grandchildren that are now grown up. How quick did it go? How do you fix this? How do you, how do you change that mindset in yourself? Well, I think that you, you don't panic. But I think you parent with a sense of urgency. But you know what? Time is ticking away. I heard it put this week in an article, 17 summer vacations. That's all I get in my kids. 17 summer vacations. Well, you check each one of those off. That's all you get? That's all you get. You don't have to panic, but I really believe that as parents, we must operate with a sense of urgency. So you'll mess up your kids if you assume you have unlimited time. Speaking of time, number six is this. Believe the myth about quantity versus quality time. Believe the myth about quantity versus quality time. This is the parent who is rarely with his or her children, but really when they are there, they're, they're focused. I mean, they're all in. We'd probably look at this person and say, what a great parent. Boy, they, their kids love them. They seem to respond when they're around. But the idea that kids need quality time instead of quantity time is a myth, and it's a lie. The truth is they need both. They need both. If we as parents are not to provoke our children to anger, to frustrate them, and and, and and leave them feeling abandoned and so on, 
But if we're to train them in the instruction of the Lord, then they need our time, and they need lots of it. Time together is a very, very powerful tool. It's, it's able to prevent the negative and instill the positive. It's a powerful tool. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, and Deuteronomy 6, which I had you write down earlier, both imply that if this instruction, this training is to be done, it's not a one-time deal. It's not get your kids together, line them all up, and say, okay, I need your attention for the next hour or so. Take a break in the middle, have some popsicles, but I need your attention. And you try to impart to them all that you know right there. Just, boom, got them. Good. Kind of walk away and feel pretty good about yourself and assume that that's the only time that you need to spend with them. It sounds ridiculous because it is. But unfortunately, is it not an easy trap to fall into? That we figure, well, you know, I can't be there very often, but, you know, when I'm there, I, I try to really do the best I can. But then you fall. There's been some research that's done. I've got, I've got an article on it. It's interesting. That, that did research on children that rated their level of happiness. And overwhelmingly, children were, were happier. Now, now, happy is not the end goal for kids, but just take that for what it's worth. They were happier when they had lots and lots and lots of time with their parents, particularly their fathers. Now, women, I'm not going to pick on you in any way because you are vital. There's no question. But there is something about the absence of a father in the home that does something to kids. It just messes with them. Studies show that over and over. They need both. They need mom and dad. They need them both working together as best they can. I realize some situations are scrambled. You've got to make the most of what you can where you are. But dads, they plead with you. They beg you. Be there. And be involved. And give lots of time. It's not easy. You got a job, you got things you got to do, you got stuff on your mind, you got responsibilities. I live there too, I understand. It's vital. It's vital. Let's not believe the myth that we just need to give them quality time. How do you fix this? I warn you up front, it may require some radical changes. I would encourage you to do something your kids like to do. It's hard for me, I'll be honest with you. My kids like shows that I don't particularly care for, whatever they may be. My kids like to play games that, you know, 500 games of slapjack in one day. I mean, how many games can you play? You know, I, but I would encourage you to do as many things as a family as possible. To even put that time on the calendar to turn off the TV, turn off your computer, turn off your phone. Hard for me to do, I'll admit to you. To leave your work at work. Or even work less. <laughs> or change jobs if you say, there's no light at the end of the tunnel for me seeing my family. I'm out of here. I'll do my best to, to provide in any way I can, but I'll tell you what, I'm not going to stick around because this is killing my family. Maybe you just need to evaluate your time spent and die to yourself and maybe some hobbies that you've got. I don't know what it is. But you'll never regret spending lots of time with your kids. You'll never regret it. But you'll mess up your kids if you believe that all they need is quality time. And then finally, number seven, as we close, attempt to parent on your own. Attempt to parent on your own. Paul calls us here in Ephesians 6 to a very, very, very high standard. 
Don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This high standard cannot, cannot be reached through human wisdom, human effort, and human methods. It goes back to what we looked at at the very beginning of this series in Ephesians chapter 5. When we saw the principle that the building block of a family is a person, a man or a woman, who lives wisely and is filled with God's Spirit, that is the only way that you can avoid these pitfalls we've talked about today. Parenting is a hard job. It is a great privilege, but it is a very difficult job. I don't have to tell you that if you've had children. It's hard. It's frustrating. It's defeating a lot of times. You feel so unworthy and inadequate and all those things, overwhelmed. And simply put, because of those things, we need Jesus. That may sound as cliche to you as anything, but the truth is that we need Jesus. We need Him for salvation. Apart from Him, the Bible says, there is not even the hope for salvation. There's not even the hope that one day we'll spend eternity forever in heaven. Without Jesus Christ, there is no hope for that. It is through His death and resurrection we are given the hope and through our faith that we receive that free gift of salvation. So we need Him for salvation. The Bible is clear on that. We need Him after salvation as well. We need Him in our parenting. We need Him in the issues of our families. This morning, I, I would imagine... That there are folks here in this room who are parents right now who have been winging it for a long time. And you just say, you know what, I really don't even know what I'm aiming at. We're just trying to get through the week. <laughs> this stuff's great you're talking about, Pastor, but you know, you don't live in my house, man. You know, I mean, you live across the street from the church. I know you bring your kids over here every morning, and you know, I have a little prayer service and all that, you know. Right. But some of us have been winging it. Some of us are convicted this morning by, by the truth we've seen from the Scripture and its implications. And the remedy for that is not trying to do better. Not just going to give your kids a hug. The remedy for many of us today may well be that we fall on our face before God. We repent. We cry out for His help. And we commit our lives to Jesus Christ afresh and anew, or maybe for the first time, and we begin to pray for our children. Pray for ourselves as parents. The truth is that all of life, and, and including parenting, comes down to our need for Jesus Christ. And so this morning as we close, and we won't spend a long time in closing today, but I wonder if there's a person or two here a parent, maybe you're here by yourself, maybe you're here with your spouse, maybe your children are with you, maybe, maybe you've got somebody on your heart that's a parent. And you say, you know what, I, I realize that you know, I can leave here and I can try to avoid all these ways of messing up my kids and, and all that. But the, the real thing that I need to do this morning is to make sure that, that I come back to Jesus Christ. That I give my life to Him, maybe for the very first time, realizing that apart from Him, there's not even the hope of forgiveness, the hope of salvation, the hope of what He calls abundant or full life here on earth. And certainly apart from Him, there's no way that I can be a godly parent. 
your response this morning may need to be that you just simply get alone with God. Maybe you'd come here and we have a step here that you can just kneel in front of and say, God, I'm going to get alone with you for just a minute. I'm going to treat this as my altar of prayer. And you just confess to the Lord that I messed up. Listen, I've blown it. And, and, and I repent. Then I receive your forgiveness tonight. I want to do it your way. Regardless of how old or young your kids may be, that may be the response this morning for you. And you'd stay there and you'd say, God, you know what? I'm committing to you today to go a different direction with my parenting. To raise my children in the instruction and training of the Lord. I don't want them to be some moralistic, therapeutic deist, just try to be good. I want them to be devoted followers of Jesus Christ. So God, change me to make me the parent that you can use to make that happen. And God, change my children. If you'd spend some time this morning praying either there at your pew or you'd be so bold as to come down front or to bring somebody with you, somebody you know that will pray for you. My prayer is that you wouldn't leave this morning just saying, hey, that, that was great. Wasn't it kind of funny? Did it differently? Went reverse. Just really let God get inside your heart this morning. And so that you as a parent and we as a church can see our children be raised in the training and instruction of the Lord. What a privilege to see that. Won't you pray with me? Lord, in this moment, give us boldness to respond to you. We need to pray individually. If we need to move toward this altar of prayer, if we need to respond physically in some way to you today, Lord, help us to do that. Most of all, Lord, touch our hearts. Make us different. Lord, thank you for your conviction that opens our eyes to a direction maybe that's, that's not right. And in that, we thank you for your forgiveness, that you're not standing there waiting to beat us up, but your arms are open, ready to receive us and love us. Help us, Lord, as parents. Help us as a church. Lord, help those who are grandparents and friends and neighbors and relatives. Lord, help us to be the kinds of people that raise and train children to follow you. We pray all this in Jesus' name.